0: It is absolutely a huge honor today to be podcast interviewing Doug Fettig, CPA, MBA. Uh, I called you. You didn't call me. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're an amazing man. Doug Fettig is a consultant with the Dental Services Group at AKT CPAs Advisors and Consultants, ranked as one of the top 100 accounting firms nationwide. With over 25 years of business and consulting experience, Doug has the unique ability to understand dentists' needs, and help them grow efficient and profitable practices. His insights allow him to effectively communicate business concepts to dental practices while strategically addressing taxes, investment, and retirement planning needs. Doug has spoken at numerous dental seminars, academies, study groups, and vendor forums around the country and is known for his energetic, engaging, and entertaining speaking style. As a dental business advisor, he is adept at collaborating with dental practices and incorporating AKTs Expertise to help grow their practice and increase their profitability. In addition to his dental speaking roles, Doug has been an adjunct faculty member at Portland State University's College of Business. Doug volunteered with a nonprofit organization, Pre- Precious Beginnings, serving as president and speaking at numerous medical and charitable events to further the mission of supporting parents with critically ill newborns. Good at you, mate. Hey, my my first question to you is um. What, what is the state of the dental industry look like today as opposed to when you first entered it? Or, or is it better to be a dentist today or was it better to be a dentist 10, 20, 30 years ago?
1: Well, you know, Howard, first of all, thank you for all the work you do for the dental community. It's, it's outstanding and it's appreciated. So I want to let you know that. So the, st- the state of the dental industry, I think, you know what, it's changed dramatically, but in some ways it's in better shape than it's ever been, which may be surprised some people. You talk about student debt that, that kids are uh, leaving dental school with. That being said, the economics still work and the o- economics work as well as they ever have for dentists. Yeah, not,
0: not many people would say that. Um, one, one of the things that, uh, that I uh, love most about uh, you, the fact that you're a CPA and an MBA, if, if, you go up to, if you go find any millionaire and say, how'd you become a millionaire? He'll say, see these reading glasses? I make them for you know, five bucks and I sell them for 10 bucks to Walgreens and they sell them for 20 bucks. A dentist walks out of the operatory, and I've been in so many offices I couldn't count them. and I say, okay, you just did an MOD composite. What did it cost you, and what revenue did you get, and how much money did you make on it? And I've never met anyone that knows. They'll have, they'll have a hygienist that'll say, you know what, I think I'm going to add another hygienist. I say, well, your hygienist, you know, Mike, he just did a cleaning exam in bite wings. Did you make $12 after taxes or did you lose 12 bucks? He says, I don't know, but I think I need another one. Uh, Why why do dentists not know their cost?
1: Well, first of all, and we talked to dentists at various dental schools around the country, dentists get almost no business training. So they, they get all the technical training in the world, they come out as incredible technical dentists, but they don't get basic business concepts. And so they don't understand that when they leave dental school, they're gonna be the CEO of their practice, the CFO, the VP of HR, the chief production officer, the head of marketing, the director of procurement, they don't understand all those things. They go, I want to be a dentist. Yeah, but you're an entrepreneur and you're a small business owner. And they never get that training and those skills. I think ideally every dentist would also have an MBA. I mean, in a a perfect world, because they're going to be running their own business. And they don't understand, am I pricing my product at a level that I can get the proper return? That's not how they think about their world. They just think in technical terms. So that's the underlying problem of why dentists, the ones who don't maximize their practices because they don't understand those basic business concepts.
0: Like when I got out of school 29 years ago, a root canal was a thousand bucks, you bill it to the insurance and they just paid 80% of your price. Mm -hmm. And then 10, 15 years later they said, forget indemnity insurance, we're gonna go PPO, we're gonna send you the price. And it was like uh, 600 bucks, 800 to 600 bucks. And now some of my friends in Phoenix are like signing up for these HMOs and they'll get like 400 bucks. And I, I say to them, I say, okay, your price was, used to be a thousand bucks. Do you, did you think that after you did a root canal that you took, put six Benjamins in your pocket? And if you only, I mean, how do you, how do you even think you're making money uh, on some of these PPOs?
1: Exactly. And, and to take that a step further, you have dentists that are considering investing in new technology in digital dentistry. A lot of their peers have done so, right? And they don't understand the economics that they can provide better dentistry, quicker, faster, and more profitably. So they don't even factor all those things in. They just think, oh, I don't want to spend $100,000 or $150,000 to invest in 3D dentistry. They don't understand the benefits. They haven't done the cost-benefit analysis and the ROI. So it's amazing. So when we talk to dental students, um, they graduate nowadays $300,000, $350,000 in in debt. Okay. And then if they decide to buy into a practice, that might be another $750,000. And then what happens is their spouse goes, "Uh, honey, you just went through dental school and you're a dentist. And by George, we should get a house. So, which is fine. A lot of them get too big of a house. And then the spouse says, I think we should have a couple of nice cars, right? And then they have this thing, they're they're wonderful, I have a couple of myself, they have these things called kids that are not free and they find themselves over a million dollars in debt and spending every penny that they're making. And that's why dentists think that the economics don't always work, is that they haven't planned this out properly. They, you know, they, they, Go down this path without without having a plan. On how they're going to get to profitability and how they're going to start saving for retirement. And, and
0: the biggest difference I see is, all the men marry that pretty little whatever <laughs> and has that mindset. I just married a rich doctor, big office, and just spends them blind. And the women dentist, three out of ten marry a male dentist. The other seven out of ten all marry a dental equivalent. I mean, they're all lawyers, physicians. They all they all have a professional job. It seems like every woman dentist I know, her husband makes six, you know, six figures and probably 70% of the male dentists I know, their wife stays home and spends six figures. I mean, I, 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 when I'm in dental schools, I say, I I say, I tell them the number one only thing you should do before you graduate is marry one of the girls in the class. I mean, that is just, (laughs) that is just the number one goal. Just do whatever it takes, you
1: know? You know how speaking of women in dentistry, you want to hear an amazing stat? In, in 1970, guess what percent of dental school students were female? In
0: 1970.
1: In 1970, take a guess. Twelve percent. One percent. One percent were female. Now it's fifty percent in a lot of dental schools. So there's been a sea change in demographics in the dental practice, in the dental field. When you mentioned women, I thought I'd bring out that stat. It's phenomenal.
0: I look so, at all the women that were in my class and I just gnashed my teeth. I mean, they're all, some of them are already retired millionaires. I mean, we're, we're all 53, class of 87. There, there's already several of them that are retired millionaires.
1: So, so you know what happens to a dentist when they get out of dental school? Here's one thing that happens to them. They, they get some well-meaning advice from somebody, but it turns out to be the worst financial advice they can ever get. And someone sits down with them, maybe it's a maybe it's a trusted uncle or their grandfather or even their father, or their mom, and they say, you know what? Before you do anything else, pay off every penny of your student debt. Okay. And we're, you know, kind of a that's the old school, you know, depression era, don't never carry debt. So you know what happens? These young dentists take that advice to heart and they put every extra dollar toward paying off their debt. And then what happens is we talk to them when they're 45 or 50 years old, and they're patting themselves on the back for just becoming debt-free, right? And then we say, oh, that's great. How much have you saved for retirement? And they pause and they get this kind of question mark above their head and they go, "Uh, I haven't started saving for retirement yet. So what happens is, Howard, they've lost 20, 25 years of the power of compound returns because they've focused on paying down their debt exclusively and haven't started paying for retirement. It's a critical mistake.
0: So what, what, are, what is your advice? Uh, in, in, first of all, I want to say, what are you seeing in the field? I mean, you're in Oregon, and uh, um, what, are, what are, you, are most of your clients in Oregon, most of your dental clients in Oregon? I'd say
1: about 60% are in the Pacific Northwest and through California. The other 40% are spread throughout the country. When we go and do our talks, we get interest from dentists around the country. So we have clients all over the, all over the map. So um,
0: so so let so let's go through. First of all, let, let let's address what are you seeing in the field for dentists right now listening to this podcast that own their dental office. What what, what are you seeing out there? Uh, what problems are you seeing? What advice are you giving? What are you fixing? What what, what what's a, what what's it from your view?
1: Well, one of the primary things we're seeing is we're seeing um, more consolidation than there's been in the past. And by that, I don't mean somebody necessarily selling their practice and joining corporate dentistry, but I mean you're seeing two and three dentists partner up in order to um, get some economies of scale, in order to share some of those costs for um, a new 3D uh, dentistry equipment, back office, um, accounting, uh, front office. So, So you're seeing dentists become better business people because in general business the concept of size and economies of scale drive most decisions in the business world. So dentists are starting to say, wait a minute, if I partner up with somebody else or three or four other dentists, we can share some of these costs and we can run our practice more efficiently and more profitably. So I think you're going to continue to see a consolidation trend. Yeah, you can still be your own dentist and run and be a lone ranger, but there's benefits to joining forces with some of your peers.
0: So you see you see the rise of not only corporate dentistry but group practice.
1: Exactly. When I say group practice, I just mean someone beyond just the dentist practicing on their own with a hygienist and three or four ops, they're realizing the benefit of joining forces because it makes it makes a lot of business sense. The problem, the problem is that it's like a marriage and we see dentists who join forces and they're not a culture fit with each other. And that leads to a lot of problems just like it will in a marriage. So my advice to dentists, my big picture advice is, you're entering into a professional marriage. You have to make sure that you fit and the other dentists involved in that fit each other's culture otherwise you're in for a bumpy ride
0: yeah and, and what 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 kind of divorce rate are you seeing among partnerships in dentistry
1: well i mean, of- I mean mar-
0: marriage mar- we just had a marriage counselor on a couple of podcasts before you and she was saying dentistry you know behaves it was just like a percent larger uh, divorce rate than the general public. About, about half of them are failed in 10 years um what 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 do you kind of divorce rate are you seeing with partnerships
1: well, first of all, just on a personal, by dumb luck, I've been married 25 years, so I credit my wife for that, not for me. So I have no, no human insights. But I will tell you that <laughs> what we see from an associate standpoint, when a, when a partner brings on an associate with the goal of eventually making them a partner, that associate washes out about 75% of the time. It, it's unbelievable. Uh, people think it's, it's easy to bring on an associate and expand your practice and bring on a partner. It's really difficult to make that work. For all kinds of reasons.
0: Okay, well let's go. So so I hire you, you're gonna be my associate, and I, eventually you're gonna buy in, and you're saying three out of four times it'll never happen. Mm-hmm. And why will it, and why what are those three out of
1: four reasons why it'll so, never happen? So one of the primary reasons is that you as the associate and myself as the partner, we don't have a tightly worded agreement. We I'll give you a couple of examples. I was doing a talk down in Nashville. And after the talk, one of the dentists came up and we were chatting. When he got out of dental school, he was he joined his father's practice, right? And his dad's like, okay, after a couple of years, I'll make you a partner. Beautiful. No, no worries. No, no, no need to write anything down. Okay. Twelve years later, this dentist had to give his dad an ultimatum. Either you make me a partner or I'm leaving and start my own practice. So people think, oh, it's a family member. There's no need for written agreements. I would I would argue that. If it's a family member, that's when you absolutely need written agreements because you don't want to ruin your Thanksgivings and Christmases for the rest of your life. Here's another example: We had a dentist out in the out in the gorge in uh, between Columbia, uh, Oregon and Washington. Have you ever been out there? It's gorgeous, the Columbia River Gorge, fantastic. So, she she joined a, a practice, a, a, a kind of a a struggling partner, and the partner once again said, after a couple of years, I'll make you a I'll make you a partner." So she worked her butt off and was there for five years before the partner, she could finally pin her down and have a conversation about becoming a partner. And at that point, she had rebuilt the practice for those five years. And the partner wanted her now to buy in at that new value of the practice that she had created. So she was costing herself money by building up the practice. And that's all because she did not have an agreement in place when she started. So it's absolutely vital that you have a written agreement in place that crosses the T's and dots the I's. I can't stress that highly enough.
0: So if you're an, um, a young dentist, you know, most podcasters are under 30. I mean, uh, uh, that's pretty much what it is. Um, so when, so these young dentists are commuting to work right now and they're thinking about, um, um, you know, wanting to get an associate job or to buy in. What, what would you recommend they do?
1: Well, so here's what I want dentists to be aware of, young dentists. First of all, there's more options than you probably realize. So. There are some basic options that dentists are aware of. One is corporate dentistry, you know, and that's fine. You, you go in and you join, you join a big group and all you have to do is be a dentist. They take care of everything else and you get a salary. That's fine. A lot of dentists do that for a few years and then realize that the reason why they went to, to dental school is they wanted to be an entrepreneur. The other option out of the gate is to become an associate. So you join a practice, correct? And hopefully you have an agreement that allows you to build toward becoming a partner a third option is to for the very ambitious is to go out there and buy a practice right out of the gate or start their own practice and it's doable but it's it's a it's a bigger risk with bigger reward there's actually a fourth option that's actually growing in popularity, and a lot of dental school students don't know it exists and it's mobile dentistry there are mobile dental clinics around the country most of them serving underserved areas where you can buy in for about $400,000 and get a beautiful, fully-loaded Winnebago set up as a, as a mobile dental clinic. And in that dental clinic, we have a we have a mobile dentist in Missouri. She's bringing in $1.5 million a year providing mobile dentistry to underserved areas. It's unbelievable. So that's a fourth option that is not even on most young dentist radar screens. Will, will you fix me and her up for a podcast? Absolutely. It's fascinating. It's, and it's growing by leaps and bounds because what happens is you take your mobile dental clinic and you take it out to Timbuktu and you practice in, let's say, a 50 mile radius. You're serving, you're serving customers who are, who are sometimes 50 or 100 miles from the nearest dentist. And to top it off, here's the icing on the cake. If you're in an underserved area, you get a break on your student loans. The government gives you a break for practicing in those areas. So it becomes a massive win-win and the economics and we run some scenarios. The economics are very favorable for mobile dentistry.
0: But you named the four, but you forgot the main one, the fifth one, which was my idea: would just marry a woman dentist in your class. <laughs> you just stay home and golf all day. You don't. You don't have to do anything.
1: See, I forgot that part. You, I,
0: just, you just
1: stay home and say, "Oh, today I'm going to get a mani-pedi and then go golf." <laughs> you, you know what my father-in-law said to my to my wife? She married me anyway. He goes, he goes, don't don't forget. You can marry into more money in five minutes than you can make in your whole lifetime. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, tell your wife that I told her that if she would have killed you on the first date, she'd be getting out of jail today. Sounds all she'd good. serve is 25 years. So this was her get out of jail day and she's still married. Exactly. Um, so so um, what, where, where are you spending most of your time? I mean, um, um, and, and first of all, how, how do people contact you if they have questions about all this stuff?
1: They can contact um, us at AKT Dental. They can contact me at dfedig at aktcpa.com. So D F as in Frank E T T I G at aktcpa.com.
0: And what's AKT stand for?
1: That's the original founders of the firm. So okay. three. Okay, AKT
0: firm. and your website's AKT Advisors.
1: Correct, aktadvisors.com, and they can go to our dental tab. We 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 do work in other industries, but dental is one of our primary niches. Right. So um, that's, that's, and then I'll get back to them in short order. So what we're seeing in one of the areas that dentists don't understand they can make changes in is almost every dentist in the world or in this country, they have a bookkeeper and maybe it's, you know, Helen. Helen's been there 20 years and Helen does some other things in the front office, but also is their bookkeeper on QuickBooks where there's these new cloud-based accounting tools where your accountant can connect with you through the cloud, connect with your bank statement. And they can really do your accounting without you ever inputting anything into a QuickBooks program. And not only that, then as a dentist, you can get real-time financial information on your mobile phone, you pull up a dashboard, what are my sales month to date, what are my expenses, where are expenses outside of my benchmark, so where do I have some warning signs that my expenses are exceeding the norm. So there's incredible tools in, in the technology side of accounting that are impacting dentistry, just like the dental world is being impacted by digital dentistry. Technology is coming at them from the financial direction as well.
0: And this is your own software?
1: No, this is a software that we partner with, uh, but we provide the the expertise to run the software. And basically, it's it's cheaper and more efficient for a dentist to use this cloud-based software than to have Helen use QuickBooks in their office and and you get more real-time information and more powerful information. And what's the name of this software? The software we use is a software called Zero. Okay,
0: Zero. It's, that's right.
1: It's with an X instead of a Z, so it's X-E-R-O, R O Zero. A powerful tool. And how long you guys been using this now? We've been partnering with them for over a year, and we're converting all of our clients. We have about 250 current dental clients across the country. We're converting all of them to Zero and bringing all of our new clients onto this tool, and it's just, it's phenomenal. It's a game changer.
0: And how much a month is something like this?
1: So, what we charge for zero when it's a new client, we charge them a setup fee to take their financial statements and transfer them. We charge them a $2,500 setup fee, and then it's $500 a month going forward. So, when you compare that to That's the cost a month, $500 a month,
0: okay,
1: for, for full real time financial statements, um, advice, and that type of thing. So, compare that to you know using QuickBooks and having someone on your team take time to work in QuickBooks once they're up and running it's a it's a no-brainer financially
0: okay I I think my only claim to fame in life is I've had more beers at more bars with more dentists than (laughs) anyone I know Mm -hmm. Uh, I lectured at Albuquerque last week and uh, after the lecture I mean we went the Bartle 3 o'clock in the morning and and I know how my homies think first thing they're gonna think is uh, if you're in my accounting you're gonna embezzle from me and then I then I reply back to him how do you know Helen's not embezzling from you and then like an ostrich they, they freeze and they stick their head in their sand so they're worried that Helen is already embezzling from her and now they're worried that here's some fancy guy the CPA and MBA who, who, who will do it so <laughs> I, that's what they're thinking well, uh, what, what would you say to that guy and he's I'm, had four beers and a shot of Patron.
1: <laughs> well at least he's drinking something good but anyway <laughs> I'm glad you brought up fraud and embezzlement so when I do my talks I give a, a little side talk on fraud so you may have heard this old joke Two out of of every four dentists have experienced fraud. The other two just don't know it. Okay, It's absolutely true, Howard. These are small businesses. They don't have a lot of internal controls, right? So what happens is in most of these small dental offices, Helen, bless her heart, has worked for me for 20 years and I trust her like a family member. So Helen takes care of the accounting. And sometimes I don't have to worry about anybody else even looking at the accounting because Helen's got it locked and loaded. So when Helen goes on vacation for a week, I just let it sit and let Helen take care of it when she gets back. Well, you know what happens? When we hear this, it's like a confessional. When we start talking about fraud, dentists start talking about their past experiences. Helen was embezzling from them for the last 10 or 15 years. And Helen maybe embezzled fifty dollars or $100,000 from them and they never knew it because they trusted Helen. And they didn't have any internal controls. And I'll give you some examples and then I'll talk about how cloud-based improves that cloud-based accounting. but So here's what some dentists do. I talk to dentists and I say, do you guys ever pre-sign checks before you go on vacation? And, the, and I talked to a dentist in Alaska. She's like, "Oh, absolutely. When I go on an extended vacation, I want the office to run smoothly. So I pre-sign checks for my office manager to use to pay bills, okay? I said, all right, here's what, here's what one office manager did to their dentist when they got these pre-signed checks. So you take the original check, you make a copy of it. On the copy, the office manager wrote ABC janitorial for July cleaning or whatever it was. Then on that copy, she made another copy of that and put it in the file. So in the file, you have a copy of a copy. It looks like the original check made out to ABC janitorial for July's cleaning for $1,000, whatever it is. So when ABC janitorial calls up in two months and they go, hey, you guys never paid me for the July cleaning. Someone else goes in the file and says, well, yeah, there's a check. There's a copy of the check right here. Meanwhile. Helen has the original check signed by the dentist that she's never written on. Well, in this case, Helen had a gambling problem. Helen makes the check out to herself, deposits it for cash, and uses it for her gambling addiction. Now, eventually what happened was, they figured out that ABC janitorial never got paid, and the house of cards collapses eventually, right? But, by the time that happened, Helen had embezzled $25,000 through the use of these pre-signed checks. And, And oh, by the way, Do you think that Helen invested some of that money in the the S&P 500 that they could get back from her? No. That money was long gone. She had a gambling addiction. So the worst thing you can do as a dentist is have a trusted bookkeeper and have nobody else have oversight into the accounting records, provide them with pre-signed checks. Here's another example. There's dentists and I say, do you review your bank statements? And they go, no, that comes to the office manager. I let them take care of it. I said, no. Those bank statements need to come directly to your house, not to your office. You need to be the one who opens them. You need to do a review of them. You need to look for unusual items, large items. And when something comes up, even if you're not, even if you think you know everything, ask a couple of questions to your office manager every month. Gee, I don't remember this, this item for twelve hundred dollars. What was that for? Again, can you show me the supporting documentation? Okay. And obviously they should be able to pull the supporting documentation on why that check was written for $1,200. If they can't, then you have the start of a problem. And by asking those questions, one or two a month, they know that you have oversight into their behavior and into the finances. And that's really all you have to do is spend a little bit of time to get your team to know that you're a part of that process. It's when you abdicate your responsibility that that's when embezzlement happens.
0: Okay, so- would, you say, would you say that um, the basic internal controls is the CEO owner of the practice signs the checks, the yep. canceled checks are mailed to the home, not the office, mm-hmm. but probably most importantly is that who's ever doing uh, collecting the insurance check, making the deposits, blah, blah, all that stuff, there's got to be at least two people in on this. So um, you really lower, do you really lower your odds if it's going to take? two people to steal because now in game theory, I got to come up to you and say, Hey, Doug, Hey, let me just run something by yep. you. You want to start stealing from our boss? And then <laughs> because I'm risking that you just sit there dumbfounded a deer looking in the headlights and then go tell my boss. So so is that, is that basically the main thing that it's going to take two people to steal then as your practice gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's going to take three people to be in on it and bigger and bigger and bigger, it'll be four people. Is, is that the biggest internal control?
1: Yep, and that's that's in, in accounting parlance, that's called segregation of duties. So the biggest thing you can do is have cross-training and have more than one person involved whenever there's cash or there's financial entries being made. And sometimes that can just be somebody else taking over the accounting duties uh, you know, one week a month, not having the same person do it constantly. So the minute you bring another person into play, you're right. You widen that world, and then two people have to keep a secret, right? And it becomes exponentially harder for that to happen. So all you need is some basic controls. I, I talked to some dentists from North Carolina Dental School and these dental students, the dental students were like, I don't, I don't want to spend 10 hours a week worrying about internal controls. I said, you don't have to spend 10 hours a week. You just have to have some cross-training. You have to have some basic oversight. You have to know that, that you have, they have to know that you're looking over their shoulder in a positive way. And here's what one of the dental students said. They said, I don't know if I'd be comfortable telling my team that we need internal controls because they're going to think I don't trust them. And I said, here's what you say to your dentist. Here's what you say to your team. You say, we're going to put in these basic controls and we're going to put them in for your protection. It's for the protection of the entire team. So we're all working on the same page. So we're not putting anybody at risk. So we're doing this for you. And that's how you present it to your team. You don't say, I'm putting this control in place because I don't trust you. You don't You don't go down that path. You say, I'm putting this in place to protect you not because i don't trust you so you see the difference
0: we're we're both an mba my uh school uh asu we weren't by the way which one which oregon are you are you a, a duck or a uh, or, 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 there's only two types of oregon people a duck and what's the other one a beaver a duck but, and a beaver
1: yeah so we never
0: cleared that up are you actually a duck or a beaver
1: well I'm i'm actually neither one but i have an allegiance to the ducks because my older son graduated from their last year, and my younger son's about to go there. So I'm, I'm financially um, tied to the University of Oregon. So I'm a duck.
0: I have to tell you, of all 50 states, that might be the biggest rivalry of any state I've ever seen. I mean that, but I, I'm a Sun Devil. They taught us at MBA school. They, they called it the Mac Truck Center. That the way you have this unapproachable, uncomfortable conversation is, is you just always tell all your employees. Um, the business comes before an individual and we have to be prepared as you were ran over by a Mac truck. Yeah. So if I got a call at eight o'clock this morning and you were on your way to work and I ran over and killed by a Mac truck, who can I put in here right now that knows your whole job? Yeah. And I've always done that. I've, I've made a receptionist go assist. I've made assistants become receptionists. Uh, I mixed through the accounting, you know, the, the people, you know, several people who do that job. But I, I think that's a, uh, because that is, is, uh, one of the one of the uh, major causes of bankruptcy in the United States is the uh, one person dies. I mean, I, 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 I used to see case studies where it would be a small business does uh, 2 million a year, 25 employees. Everything was great, but their sales was just this one guy, and he sold all 2 million. He drops dead of a heart attack. They hire a guy who's amazing, but he could only sell 1.5 million a year, and thus, they didn't cash flow. And, the, and all these case analysis are saying if your business can't survive any one person being ran over a Mack truck you really don't have a business
1: you're absolutely right and in fact that's a great way to approach it to Helen and say "Helen, we need to have another person involved you you might fall ill you might get hit by a truck we have to have cross training so everybody can do everybody else's job now you mentioned um, like a catastrophic illness or something another thing I can't stress uh, enough to young dentists is you have to have disability insurance you must get disability insurance I talked to a dentist, it was a really sad story. He was out working in his backyard, he was working on a fence or something, smashed his hand with a hammer, and for six months, he couldn't practice dentistry. His, his hand was injured that bad, now fortunately, they were able to do surgery and he was able to eventually practice again. Now, he do you that- need
0: disability insurance if you're already married to a disability? <laughs>
1: That's that's kind of a catch twenty two. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but but Dennis, who you know, a lot of people. I I'm I'm old. I know I'm not immoral anymore. You're still young, Howard. But these old these young people <laughs> these young people they think they're immoral. They, Why do I need disability insurance? Well, if you get sick and you can't practice, there goes your income, right? If you get injured, if you if you break your arm, even you have disability insurance. So I can't stress highly enough that, uh, especially when they're young, it's, it's, it's inexpensive. You must get disability insurance. Okay, so
0: Dentaltown uh, is now on an app and it's got uh, 50,000 downloads. So of the 217,000 dentists on Dentaltown, 50,000 them are on the app. And if I go to the app category and I go to practice management or I go to finance right now and I'm just scrolling down, mm-hmm. half the questions in your department are, my labor's out of control. My labor costs are high. Uh, and they're always asking, okay, so this guy just posted one minute ago, he said, um, you know, they say labor should be 25%, and that includes everything, uniforms, health insurance, blah, 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 blah. But that's different if I'm in a PPO practice versus you're in a cosmetic practice. So I just want you to rant on all your thoughts on labor, since that is, seems to be what people are worried about the most.
1: Well, so first of all. And,
0: and first of all and for, do you see that in the field from your 250 offices? Is this a concern among your 250 clients spread out across the United States?
1: Absolutely. And, and the reason why labor is a concern is it's usually their biggest ticket item in their in their expense list, of course, labor. And here's the here's the here's the difficult part about labor. It's not a one size fits all. So depending on what part of the country you live in, depending on the type of benefit package that you offer, depending on whether you have an associate or not and how you're compensating them, depending on the bonus structure you have in place for your hygienist, those are all going to impact that labor percentage. So, is there a range? Yes. We don't, we don't think your, your labor line items should be above 30%. It, uh, and that can include different factors. If it is, something to look at. Now, if you say my labor is 22%, I might say, really? Do you have the benefits included in that? Is that fully loaded? So, I think there's a lot of different factors that come into play. And Dennis, not being sometimes the best business people, don't understand those different factors that impact that percentage.
0: So, 30 is the max, and what, 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 what should the ideal
1: be? I'd say the ideal. The ideal that we see, about 28%. 28%.
0: Because
1: think about it. If your labor costs are dramatically below the average, is that sustainable? Are you, are you maybe, maybe you're undercompensating your people. Maybe that's a short term strategy that's going to destroy your practice in the long term, right? You want to have your people compensated so they feel like they're uh, a valuable part of the team. So you're not having constant turnover. So I would argue that you can you can shoot yourself in the foot if your labor costs are too low. So there's a range in there that that we're comfortable with. And it's generally that 26, 27, 28 percent.
0: I want to I want to go to an MBA question. Um, when we're in MBA school, the the Fortune 500 is just filled with mergers and acquisitions. I mean, e- even this week, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft bought LinkedIn. I mean, you know, Yahoo. You know, blah 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 blah. And I see um, mergers and acquisitions in dentistry is just almost never used. Like like when I'll, I'll meet a dentist in a town of uh, four dentists, an old man McGregor is finally going to sell, <laughs> and the smart one goes and buys his practice, moves into him because he's eliminated a competitor. There were four dentists, mm-hmm. now there's three, and all those new patients, uh, you know, and and uh, etc. As opposed to let him sell it some young bucking bronco moves in and is ready it has 10 times more energy than you do um what do you, do you think mergers and acquisitions um buying the old retiring dentists across the streets practice and merging your mind do you, do you think it's a uh, underutilized fair market overutilized i mean it, because it seems like whenever i meet some guy who's doing three four million dollars a year he's mm. bought Two practices in his career of retiring Dennis. What, what what do you think about that?
1: Well, I, I think it's a I think it's a, it's an excellent business strategy, but it has limitations. And I think the reason why you've seen less consolidation to date in the dental field than you have in general healthcare is because it's a relationship business, and so you have the leave it to beaver situation where the kid goes to the same dentist as the parents, and they've known Dennis McGregor for whatever years, and so you have that element that's that corner grocery store element that's still fairly prevalent in dentistry. So so I think that for a dentist to come in and buy a new practice, it's not as simple as as buying a a hardware store or something else. It's it's very relationship dependent. So the smart ones that buy a practice to expand, understand that relationship component and try to reconnect and rebuild that component with with the practice they just bought so, so those new patients don't feel like, they're now part of this corporate dentistry practice. They want that personal touch, that personal feel. So I think that's the mistake that some dentists make when they go down the expansion path. They look at the numbers, and the numbers might work. But you gotta realize some people maybe were coming to that practice outside of a geographic area because their parents grew up with that dentist. And once you buy that practice, they're like, well, old man McGregor's gone. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drive that far anymore. So you're gonna have a natural attrition when when that dentist retires, it's just human nature. And you have to factor those things in. And it's not just, it's just, not just an ROI calculation.
0: So let, let's go back to cost because I, I think um, costs are in everyone's mind. Cause like I say, when I can't believe that 29 years ago, I got more money for a root canal than I do today. I mean, <laughs> 29 years ago is a thousand bucks and Delta paid 80%. Now these PPO's are saying, you know, send them, you sign up for 82% of dentists have signed up for them. A root canal is 600 to $800. Um, a lot of them are complaining about costs. We just saw Patterson dental company lay off several hundred of their, uh, their reps. A lot of dentists are always wondering, am I paying too much for my supplies? Should I be jumping around between Patterson, Benco, Burkhart, shopping online, my labor is too high. And a lot of this squeeze is because their prices come down mm-hmm. with all these PPOs. So, so, so talk about overhead and, and what are you seeing in the field? What, what you know, is, is it, is it a big problem? Is it not that big a problem? You know What do what, what you see in
1: the field? First let me touch on your example of the price of a crown. I guess I would say to you, I wonder how much you paid 25 years ago for a color television set versus how much you're paying today and what the quality of that is. So part of that is the impact of technology and efficiency. So I'm not shocked that the price of a crown is relatively the same as it used to be because other factors come into play. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean a DVD, my first one was $800 and now you can get a better one for 50 is so that so, what you're saying? Is that the point you're making that, that I, so over te- time everything gets faster, better? Uh- Absolutely.
1: Th- think about in, in our day we're going to see self-driving cars. Okay, they already have the technology, right? The first self-driving car is going to cost God knows what. When once they start mass producing them, the cost comes down. So, so to compare compare procedure costs, there's other factors that come into play versus strictly time. So you have to factor in those other things. Um, around around overhead specifically. It's really important that dentists understand, a lot of dentists don't even understand their budget and what their benchmarking costs should be. What should I be paying? What's a reasonable amount to be paying uh, for rent as an overhead, as a, part of my, as a part of my budget? What's a reasonable amount to spend for dental supplies? What's a, re- what's a reasonable amount to spend for lab? They, don't, they haven't budgeted for that. So there's the old phrase in business, we manage what we measure. If as a dentist, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, if you're not measuring those things, how can you possibly manage them? And once you start to manage them, sure. So the pressure on the Pattersons of the world, the Burkharts, the Shines, all those people is pricing pressure. Because if I can go online and I can order the exact same product or what I think is the same product for a lower price, I'm going to do that. Especially young dentists, right? They, they live in the Amazon Prime world. Order it; it's there in two days. That's the world they grow up in. So you have to give them, as a rep, you have to give them a compelling reason of why it makes sense to order this product from me. If it's if it's even slightly more expensive, they have to understand that there's value either in that relationship or in the quality of that product. Um,
0: another big emotional question that they're always asking is uh, to own their land and building or not. Um, you know, they're they're. A lot of, okay, so here's the scenario I, I see all the time in downtown. Um, she's got a practice. It's in San Antonio. She's running 2,500 square foot in a nice shopping center. She's crushing it. Yeah. But in the back of her mind, it's always torturing her saying, you're throwing away $2,500 of rent every month. You should buy land and building. This is America. You know, Is that a territorial instinct or is that a good business decision? I mean, well, what would you say to someone who everything's fine, she's crushing it, but it just kills her that she's renting?
1: Well, I would say that there are some there are some long-term benefits to, to buying that that maybe they haven't factored in. So first of all, right now, what are what are mortgage interest rates? I don't know, they're three and a half, three point seven five percent. So right now, it's just like it's a great time to to buy a house. It would be a great time to build out a practice because of interest rates. And once you do that, I'm glad you brought out brought this up because there's a there's a term that's used It's called cost segregation. So if you go out and build a new build, a new dental build out. A lot of dentists, their accountant is not savvy enough and they depreciate that entire build out over 39 and a half years because that's what you depreciate land and buildings at. When in reality, you can take all of the components needed to provide dentistry the plumbing, the HVAC, the air conditioning system, the special equipment that's all considered part of dentistry and you can depreciate that over five years. So there are some massive cash flow benefits when you do a new build out if you have a cost segregation done, and move those those costs up to a five year depreciation schedule. Beyond that, the benefit of owning is that for a lot of dentists when they retire, they continue to own that property to the person they sold it to, so they have residual rents coming in as, as, a, as a retirement buffer, as a cash flow um, buffer that they have in retirement because they still own that property. So there's some long term things to think about as well. Now if someone's killing it, okay, um, Maybe they don't need to build a new, but maybe they can build a new site and still keep the one they have and expand and not put all their eggs in one basket. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But the money is out there from lenders. I talked to one lender. I said, what percent of your dentists uh, ever go bad, ever default on a loan? He goes about 1%. And those are the ones that probably have addiction problems or something. Dentists are considered an unbelievably good credit risk by lenders. I mean, you have cash flow. You have a, you have you have a built-in demand; it's all there. And
0: and you're right. Um, when we when you talk to um, people who just do dental practice transition deals, they all say that's the they're the envy of their whole banking system because they have the lowest default rate yep. across all the verticals in their whole sector. They're they're at top one percent, and they always do say the failures have more to do with personal issues. They got addicted. Uh, they got uh, you know, and eighty five percent of the time that's alcohol. Fifteen percent of the time it's Uh, Pills and other stuff and also back to embezzlement. It seems like a lot of the embezzlement stories. I uh, See the embezzler had some dysfunction with the doctor. They were either um, addicting uh, they were either sharing prescriptions for uh, Vicodin or they were having sex and not only uh, sex a lot of them are ex-wives where the ex-wife she was done she was paying all the bills and she I, I know one, I know two cases alone Where she was moving five to six thousand a month to sydney australia and just stayed with them for two or three years and then when he finally found out she had you know all that stuff so so yeah so did you do you see that where the person embezzling has has some weird relationship with the doctor
1: yeah oftentimes there's a there's a relationship but maybe it's a maybe it's a romantic relationship or maybe if it's your spouse who was your office manager and you get a divorce then it's probably wise to divorce them from your business as well. Because depending on the, the nature of the divorce, or even if you think it's been a, a, a amicable divorce, it's probably a, a good idea to make that, that break from the business side of the practice as well because, I mean, I, I, I don't know, it just it seems like an awkward dynamic at a minimum.
0: Yeah. So Okay, so let's uh, – um, we're already uh, – oh my gosh, I'm, uh, this time is going way too fast. I'm already three-fourths through the show. It's only 45 minutes. I want you to take off your, uh, forget everything we just said, put on your your, your father hat. Your okay. daughter just graduated last month from dental school, and she says, Dad, what should I do? What what, what, should, what mistakes do kids, you know, they, this is just uh, August 3rd. They just walked out of uh, school uh, just a month ago. Uh, what advice would you give your daughter? She's coming out of school. What, what are the do's and don'ts? I don't want to learn everything the hard way. You already stuck your tongue in a light socket. Give me, talk to me.
1: One thing I would say is one of the the mistakes a young dentist makes is I think they wait too long to start their own practice or to become a partner. And every year you wait, you're losing that earning power of being your own boss and being an entrepreneur. So I would encourage her to have an aggressive schedule to either become a partner or to open her own practice. That's number one. Number two, I touched on this earlier, is there's an old saying, the, the first day, when's the first day you should start saving for retirement? The first day you have a paycheck. So I'll give you an example. My older son who just graduated from U of O, he got a job in sales, you know, base commission, just starting out, right? His base, his base salary was 30 grand a year, okay? I encouraged him to put 10% into his 401k. So let's do the easy math, $3,000 a year. Because he started doing that at the age of 22, If he never gets a raise, which means he's the worst salesman in the world, and keeps putting in three grand a year, by the time he retires, that 401k will be worth over a million dollars because of the power of time value of money. So I'm telling my, my, I just told my son directly, or telling my daughter, whoever it is, you must start saving the minute you get a paycheck. It doesn't have to be a lot, but you must start saving something. If you do that, you're on your way to becoming a millionaire. The other option, the other thing I tell them is, Don't forget that you have a lot more options than you realize. I would explain to her, you have the option of joining corporate dentistry, becoming an associate with a written path to partnership. Look at mobile dentistry. There's all kinds of different ways to slice and dice the start of a career. But my main advice would be, have a goal to have that path be to take you to a partner as quickly as possible. Because that's why most of these kids went to dental school. They want to be, their own boss. They want to run their own business.
0: Now, can you help them on that transition associate contract advice?
1: Absolutely. We work with dentists all the time that are either making that transition from the associate side or their existing partner bringing an associate. We work with them on the written agreements, what should be included, what to make sure they have, how that process should. We work with them on on income distribution, which can be a highly sensitive area. You know, how much should you make as an associate versus how much you're producing. How much should a partner give up when they're bringing in a new part, a new associate? When is the right time as a partner? Uh, some some partners think, "Oh, I'm billing seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. I can bring in an associate." No, they can't. They can't support one yet. So that partner, that existing practice, has to have enough revenue to support and grow that new associate. And we help them with all those different areas. Um- but
0: you said earlier in your program, uh, the thing I see the most common, the dental office is doing 750 uh, seven fifty, uh, hires this young working hard lady. She builds it up to 1.5 mm-hmm. and then when she goes to buy in the practice is worth 1.5. So you're basically going to go in there, make the cake and then buy it from the dentist.
1: <laughs> That's what we see, unfortunately, because there wasn't an agreement in place on as the value of that practice increases, What does that do to the buy-in price? We we need to give that associate some incentive to build up the value of that practice and not have to pay for all that on the back end. So there's ways to do that, correct? I mean, there's formulas you can do. And what percent of the, when
0: you're in dental schools, what percent of the graduates do you think have the mindset of, you know, I'm a millennial, Um, you know, um, I just want to be an associate my whole life versus I'm an entrepreneur, I want to own my own business. What, What are you seeing when you're out there? What percent?
1: We, we, um, we saw, I saw some surveys recently, fully 75% of young dentists, their goal is to become an entrepreneur and have their own practice. Now, they may not start that way. They may see corporate dentistry as a, as a opening vehicle for their career, but fully 75% of them want to be, want to run their own practice, they want to be a small business owner. So there's a strong, a strong vein of entrepreneurship in, in, in young dental students.
0: Are some of these corporate chains better to work for than others?
1: Well, um, yes. I'm not going to name names, but but they all have the same concept, and it's oh, not that
0: come on, name names. This is dentistry uncensored. <laughs> we can Sorry. cost tell dirty jokes. This
1: is HBO. It's not that they're. It's not that some are better or worse than others. They're all have the same principal concepts. You're going to come in and you're going to learn the ropes, and you're going to practice a lot of dentistry, and we're going to compensate you as an employee and for some of them they even have potential um, I would say employee ownership options where they can you know buy into the corporation so to speak and maybe get a piece of the ownership versus some where you're simply an employee and what happens to a lot of young dentists I'm not putting corporate dentistry down but they do that for a few years and then they realize I didn't go to dental school just to be an employee I want to have more control over my career that being said it is an absolutely the right path for some people, and there's nothing wrong with dentists starting out on that path. I just think that a lot of dentists realize that, my gosh, I could have been building my own practice the whole time, but I've been working for somebody else.
0: If you're a corporate CEO listening to this, which I know you are, because I get a lot of times, they'll send me a quote of something I said. You know what, You know, just go to Dentaltown. There's four million posts. I mean, there's changed my life. It seems like the, big, the, the biggest advantage of going into corporate from the dentist, they say, "Okay, I, I just graduated four years of school, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt, and I only did these requirements. I did fifty fillings, fifteen canals of endo, five dentures, and now they're doing all their requirements every month. So when you're when you're a fireman, you just want to you know a fireman actually like fires. You know, you you don't <laughs> like it when your house on fire, but a fireman gets excited and he's in a red truck on the way to a fire, and uh, so doing that volume dentistry is amazing." Where most of the kids are really upset is when um, someone non-dental starts driving a clinical. Like, oh, well, if they have a six-millimeter pocket, you got to put a minocycline stick in there, and they're reading the literature, and they don't buy it, they don't believe it. So I, if, if, I, if, I own a, if I own a corporate dentist, I would never let someone who's not a dentist make any dental treatment decision because nothing will zap the morale out of a dentist faster when they're sitting there doing something they don't believe in their heart. But I want to ask you another, true or false? A lot of the dentists and dental schools say that when they go to work at corporate, the contract is non-negotiable. They're a big chain. They got 50 offices, 300, 1500. They give you a contract, sign right here or
1: get the hell out of
0: here. True or false?
1: False. Everything's negotiable. I mean, I really believe that.
0: Do you negotiate that? Can they call you for that or is that not your
1: expertise or what, what would you do? Well, we certainly give them some advice, but I think that like any business, it's like when, you, when you're hard on by anybody, there is always room for negotiation. Now, there might be certain non-negotiable items within that contract, but to say that's non-negotiable, I think that's too broad brush of a statement. And I think people need to have someone else take a look at that language and maybe provide them with some advice, which is something we can help them with. Um, the, the
0: the research is pretty clear. 82 out of 100 dentists take PPOs. How many... How many um do you ever see this in the field? A doctor's taking twelve PPOs. Um, he's creating a filling for one fifty. When he sells it for one sixty, he makes ten bucks. When he signs a PPO and sells it for one forty, he loses ten bucks. Have you ever seen where a doctor's taking twelve PPOs and you drop four of them that are running at a loss, and at the end of the year, his his total collected revenue and production has gone down, but his net
1: income has gone up? You hit the nail on the head. I, I think a lot of dentists don't understand that if you're losing. 10 bucks on a procedure, it doesn't do you any good to do a hundred more of that procedure, right? Right. So, so a lot of dentists don't understand. And PPOs are a way of life for most dentists. That's a fact. That being said, there still can be some fee negotiation within that PPO. And, and a lot of dentists don't have a fee analysis done on a regular basis. And even a fee analysis can let you know sometimes we have information on fee analysis where we know the maximum amount that a PPO will will let you charge for a procedure. Some dentists submit a lower amount than the maximum because they don't know it. A fee analysis can help you determine what is the maximum amount you can charge for a fee and are there certain procedures you shouldn't be doing? If you're not gonna make money on a procedure, why do it? I mean, it's basic business.
0: Oh, I, most of my oral surgeon friends quit doing <clears throat> orthognathic surgery because they kept lowering the fee and they said, and they just said to me, they said, look, this is the hardest procedure I do. This is a procedure I don't even sleep the night before and now you want me to do it at a loss? Are you kidding me? And a lot of them are glad. They're like, I'm so glad they keep lowering the fee and I quit doing them because they're so hard and I'm not doing it for a loss. But uh, then it's just uh, routinely uh, do things at a loss and have no idea they're doing it. How, how, how could, so this fee analysis, is that something you do?
1: Absolutely, we do a, we do a detailed fee analysis by zip code. So if you're in uh, whatever zip code you're in, we're gonna do a fee analysis by procedure for you and your peers in that zip code. So you're going to know if what you're charging for an adult profi, are you at 50% of your peers? Are you at 70%? And for dentists who have not done a fee analysis in two or three years, I guarantee you they're probably leaving money on the table. So let's say you want to get up to a 70 percentile of your of your peers. Just for a routine adult profi, if you're charging an extra 10 bucks versus what you were, that adds up to tens of thousands of dollars over the year of your practice. So a, a, a best practice dentist should do a fee analysis once a year. What, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you know? Want to know what you should be charging for that incredible world-class dental care that you're providing? And, and what do you?
0: What, and what do you uh, charge for a fee analysis?
1: So for a fee analysis, the first time we do one, it's about fifteen hundred bucks to do a fee analysis, and, and the payback is instantaneous. And then for an ongoing basis, the price drops to about a thousand bucks to do repeat fee analysis work.
0: And how often should someone get a repeat?
1: Every year, and Once.
0: so it's fifteen hundred the first time and a thousand for the repeat. Yep. And what percent of the time do dentists give you fifteen hundred dollars and they get their fifteen hundred back from increased
1: fee revenue? They they make that fifteen hundred dollars back in a heartbeat. Hundred percent of the time, I guarantee you, it, unless they had, unless they just did a fee analysis, I guarantee you they have fees within their practice. They have procedures within their practice that they're below sometimes below the 50th percentile and I tell Dennis why do you want to Walmart yourself? You went to dental school, you're providing world-class dental care, hopefully digital dentistry now. There's no reason for you not to charge the market rate for your fees. And the way you explain it to your patients, you tell them we're bringing in world-class technology, we're providing you with world-class dental care. I'm proud of my work and I'm proud of the fees that I charge, I think they're appropriate. And that's but, how you explain but, it.
0: But how do you do a fee analysis when they're taking 12 different insurance plans and every one of them is paying them a different fee.
1: Well, you're still doing a fee analysis based on what your peers are charging. Now that might be impacted by the PPO rate, absolutely. But still there's going to be some procedures that fall aside of that and you're going to have some non-PPO patients. Most practices have some non-PPO patients.
0: Yeah. So, okay, I want want to switch subjects completely. I only got you for four minutes. but. have you ever heard seen the show last week tonight with John Oliver on HBO um, you know, on Sunday nights uh, late uh, have you heard of that show
1: I've not seen it I've seen John Oliver but I've not seen that show
0: well anyway he it, it's a it's a new genre of news that I think uh, caught um, uh, what was his name and John Stewart pioneered or, or, yeah. or, you know, I think they're actually crediting uh, Bill Maher as a a humorous type of news because you know people watch When we grew up on, uh, you know, these boring guys, you know, that just monotone. And they thought, okay, we're going to tell you the news, but it's going to be funny. But anyway, anyway, he did an entire episode just beating the crap out of all these 401k plans for all these hidden fees. And so he had someone come in and he got bids for his own staff at, at the deal. And it was amazing how the hidden fees alone at the end of, for 25 employees for his company, that at the end of uh, 20 years, I mean they, they lost millions of dollars from hidden fees and, and he was talking about how the industry is unregulated and that it, it, it's a joke and then, so have, have you been seeing and then it's been making, you know, there's been a lot of stories on it in the newspapers, the New York Times, uh, well, what, do you, what do you think about the average dental office 401k? Uh,
1: I'm glad you asked that, we actually, within AKT we have a wealth management team that, that manages a billion dollars in assets. And one of the things we focus on is, is fees. and People don't realize the impact that fees have over the course of the lifetime of that retirement plan. I'll give you an example. So if you took $200,000 and you invested it for 25 years, and let's say your total return was 6%, okay? That's gonna grow to about $800,000. Say if the number again. That, so that $200,000 invested for 25 years is gonna grow to $800,000. Okay. At 6%. At 6% if If you only get a total return of five percent, because you paid an extra percent in fees, that grows to six hundred fifty thousand dollars. That one percent in fees costs you one hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's amazing. And
0: and what percent? What is the average uh, hidden fees that you
1: find in a dentist client
0: when you review their four hundred one k?
1: Well, let me put it this way: if you're paying if you're paying in fees over one percent, you're you're probably paying too much. You should be paying less than. You should be paying 1% or less in fees for that 401k plan. Now, are your guys fiduciaries? Yep. We have uh, AKT wealth advisors is a, uh, is a SEC company. They're fiduciaries. We have tax planners as part of that team. So they'll, they'll do full cycle, uh, lifetime tax planning and retirement planning for a dentist. And so they're looking for the entire lifetime of, of tax mitigation versus just one or two years down the road. So it seems like a lot of these
0: stories keep saying the same thing that if the person managing your 401k is not a fiduciary, then they basically don't have to um, expose or, or or be transparent with a lot of this stuff. Or can you explain the fiduciary role and do you think that's a critical part in who's managing your 401k?
1: Well, it is a critical part. Your, your 401k provider should certainly be a fiduciary but what most people don't realize is if you're the owner of the practice. by by virtue of being the owner and providing that plan to your employees, you're also a fiduciary. So if something blows up with that plan, you can be personally liable. And so we do a a whole separate seminar to explain to dentists what it means to be a fiduciary. Even if you have a 401k provider, you as the dental provider of that plan are still personally liable if something goes haywire. So there's certain things you wanna do around communicating to your employees, providing them education, making sure fees are reasonable, so you're not subject to a potential uh, lawsuit from one of your employees.
0: And what if one of my homies is uh, wondering uh, what his fees are in his four hundred and one k, and he couldn't tell you anything about it? How much does it cost for you to review his four hundred and one k to see what the fee structure is like and if this is a good thing or not?
1: You know, we'll we'll do we'll do a we'll do a free, cursory review of the four hundred and one k plan they have, and come back with some suggestions because we realize for most plans we can come up with some pretty valuable ideas and then if that relationship evolves that's great. But we'll take a we'll take a cursory look at their plan and give them some initial ideas right out of the gate.
0: So what 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 would they need? Do they email this? Do they mail a hard copy? What what what's the best thing? Uh, what's it's, the easiest way to get this done? It's it's
1: usually via email is the easiest way because then when we can transfer information and communicate that way and look at details, then we follow up with a phone call obviously but but usually to have the information in an electronic form makes it the easiest for us to review.
0: And how many pages of that, that booklet? I mean, just the whole damn thing?
1: No, it can be at least a lot of times with a summary of the plan. That'll give us enough information to understand. We, we see plans all the time. So once we know who's, who the administrators for the plan and who they're working with, we have a pretty good idea of what's involved in the plan. Okay,
0: well, man, that was the fastest hour I've ever done. Uh, Doug, uh, thanks for serving uh, 250 dentists across the United States. And uh, thanks for all you do for dentistry. I've heard a lot of great things about you. Uh, I hope you're a uh, zero thing, uh, X-E-R-O, uh, I think that's amazing. Uh, I, I'm still shocked at how many, th- this, this Steve Jobs iPhone's been out since 2008, and people just don't utilize it. I mean, look at dental insurance. They still come in with a piece of paper cutting down from a tree, and then I have to pay a human being to call over some telegraph line to talk to someone else and say, Hey, is Doug Fettig really covered on your plan? Why isn't it on the damn iPhone? Why don't they come in and pull up their Blue Cross and Blue Shield app, bar scan it, and say, "Oh, you're Doug Fettig. Here's your address. Here's all your information." I mean, so uh, I hope your Zero really takes off well, because let's let's
1: let's think about somebody doing a special segment just on Zero, and we can show them some the power of the the screenshots and how they can access information mo- with their mobile device. It's phenomenal.
0: Well, another thing you could do is um, we put up a. Uh, for 350 or 400 uh, online CE courses on our dental town app, and they've been viewed 600,000 times. Millennials, old dogs like us, would go to uh, conventions and sit in seats and chairs and listen to humans talk. These millennials, uh, they're so lazy, they won't get out of bed. They're just uh, laying in their, uh, their, their lazy boy. And they, they say they love it. In <laughs> fact, this one girl sent me a picture where they actually have hats where you drop your iPhone into the hat and it looks like you're watching a big screen TV. And uh, so, yeah, do an online course. And yeah. uh, you'll, you'll hit more people digitally uh, online than you ever will in a convention.
1: And just to clarify, they're not lazy. They're efficient, okay?
0: <laughs> they're, they're not lazy. They're efficient. I love calling them lazy because that just really gripes it. They're just smarter. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, the, the bottom line with millennials is after World War II, the average American woman was having five and a half kids, and she started having them at seventeen. The millennials start having them at twenty-seven. Yep. Uh, a quarter of them say they'll never ever have a kid, and if they do have a family, they're only going to have one or two. I want to I make one ending note on on uh, millennials. As uh, as far as uh, I know, they're scared about opening a practice. But I, I want to say one thing: being a grandpa now, I got a granddaughter who's four years old. Um, you know, there's no good time to have a kid or buy a practice. Or jump out of an airplane with a parachute. Mm-hmm. Do it while you're young and dumb, because the older you get and the more you wise, you start to understand everything that can go wrong. And then you say, "I don't want to have a kid. Uh, I don't. I don't want to buy a practice. I, I don't want to." So I, I always tell people, you know, the best time to buy a practice? Eight seconds after you graduate. You know, when the okay. best time to have a kid is? Never. So <laughs> make three tonight, because they're going to be the most. Expensive, exhausting, hardest thing you've ever done. I love my four boys more than they got one of them sitting right next to me. But there, there's no good time to have a kid. There's no good time to start your own business. Just freaking do it while you're young and dumb and have all that energy before you get too damn smart to see all the risk, And then you freeze from paralysis by intelligent analysis. Yeah. Little kids don't analyze all the pros and cons, and that's when you go into. You're not going to drown. You have less than a one percent failure rate, and that's going to be because you're a drunk. So if you're not, if you don't have a substance abuse problem and you don't have a gambling problem, uh, just go do it. You're either going to sink or swim. Get it out of the way while you have all that energy, and the next thing you know, you're on Easy Street.
1: I couldn't agree more. I would tell young dentists: believe in yourself and take risks. You're in a great profession. It's that simple.
0: Well, and you're great. And thank you so much today for spending an hour with me. I feel bad that I didn't put a tie on for you. I feel I feel underdressed. You have all that hair going and the tie going. I forgot to wear my wig. I didn't put on a tie. Uh, but I did brush and floss my teeth today. That's all I can say. I'll take my tie off next time. All right, buddy. Thanks for all you do. If you ever want to come back, let me know. Thanks, Howard.